Please open your Bibles to the book of Exodus. And for this morning, let's look at Exodus chapter 24. And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. So around seven times Moses goes up the mount, he goes down the mount. And here Moses has been invited, and that's the most appropriate word, to have fellowship with Almighty God. Come up unto the Lord. Revelation chapter 4, come up hither. Thou and Aaron, Nadab. So Moses and Aaron are brothers. And Nadab was one of Aaron's sons. And Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel. And worship ye afar off. Keep your hand there and go to Luke chapter 9. Jesus Christ would also use 70 men in addition to the 12 apostles. Look at 27, if you will. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which are not taste of death, till they see the kingdom of God, Jesus speaking. And it came to pass, about and eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. Two brothers... Contrast that to Moses and Aaron, 29. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there taught with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Well, Moses wouldn't be allowed to go into the promised land, and yet here we are, Many years later, around 2,000 years later, and he finally makes it into the promised land. In glory, of course. In a spiritual sense, of course. Look at verse 32. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, they saw his glory. They saw his glory. They saw his glory. And the two men that stood with him. Go back to Exodus 24. So... From Exodus chapter 24, God is speaking to Moses. And when we say God, most people, most Bible teachers think it is in reference to the Father. I'm not overly sure. If you think of Isaiah chapter 9, it says how Almighty God will give the Son to the world. And he's called the Mighty God, Prince of Peace. But he's also called the Everlasting Father. Not God the Father, but Israel's Father. So it could be. And especially during the thousand year reign that Jesus Christ as Israel's everlasting father is very much in the driving seat. And it could be from Genesis to Malachi that the person who is speaking most of the time could be Jesus Christ. And he said unto Moses, could be the father, could be the son. We don't know for sure, but I'm pretty convinced it's not the Holy Ghost who many times gets overlooked. Come up unto the Lord. This is very reminiscent to Isaiah Chapter 1, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, they shall be as wool. Thou and Aaron, you and Aaron, two biological brothers, contrast that to Jesus going up to a mount up on high with two biological brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Aaron, Nadab, and of course Moses makes three, if you want an unofficial picture of the Trinity, and Abihu could represent someone like Joshua. You get into types and shadows, you've got to be careful because you can stretch it a bit too far. And 70 of the elders of Israel. 
Matthew chapter 10, Luke chapter 10 refers to Christ calling the 70, like I say, in addition to the 12. And it's long been my belief that Dr. Luke was quite possibly one of the 70. And worship ye afar off. Later on, it says we can draw nigh by the blood of Christ. But here, in this point in Israel's history, it's going to begin slowly but surely. And again, God is speaking to Moses. Moses is a type of Christ. New Testament, Christ takes a couple of brothers up to see him being transfigured. And here God is calling up at least three people. And with Moses, that gives you four. Look at verse two. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh. Neither shall the people come up with him. Not yet. So Moses is given a very special place here. And Moses, a type of mediator, 2 Timothy chapter 2 is going to go up once again to see the Lord. But the people, like verse 1, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel are temporarily excluded. There's business to be done, you see. Neither shall the people go up with him. So you see there is a distinction, a delineation between the Old Testament and the New. For today, we have access to God. Paul says, if we were to die right now, right now, absent from the body, present with the Lord straight up to the third heaven but pre the death burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ if you died believing in the one true God you went into the ground and you waited for the Messiah to come look at verse 3 and Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said all the words which the Lord hath said will we do this blows me away time after time Everything that we've just heard, we will do. And yet go back to chapter 19. This was also written down in Exodus. Everything that Moses told them, they said, yes, we agree to this. We will follow along, not really realizing what they were signing up for. Look at verse 3 again. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord. So God's words are traveling literally through the air. There are three heavens. For example, if I was to jump up and down, that's the first heaven. If I was to jump on a plane, that's the second heaven. If I was going to space, that's the third heaven. That's why it says over in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heaven, singular, and the earth. Because he starts with our domain, if you will. Then by Genesis chapter 2, it's expanded out to heavens, plural. Second heaven, third heaven. But here Moses comes, speaks to the people, And he says how all the words of the Lord have been given to him and all the judgments, audible inspiration, which later on he will write down. And all the people answered with one voice, all in agreement, and said, all the words which the Lord hath said will we do. Well, they probably thought they could do this. They probably thought they could live this. Going back to most Christians when they first get saved, they say, yes, I'm going to follow the Lord, make him Lord of my life. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And they hit choppy waters and they realize very quickly and very soon into their walk with the Lord that it's not as easy as they first thought but so far so good you've had a mixed multitude leave Egypt they've gone up into the promised land Jehovah has spoken to Moses given him the ten commandments and he's building on it the people are seeing and hearing God for the first time in their lives from Adam to Abraham no books are being written and from Abraham up until the time of Moses's arrival still no books have been written they're living by faith you see 
until the end of Moses' life or towards the end of his life, the books start to be written. And here they say, yes, we can do what has been commanded us, a to-do. But go back to verse 1 again. And he said unto Moses, come up unto the Lord. If God hadn't said that, if God hadn't invited Moses to come up to see him, Moses and co. would have been in complete darkness. You see, it's up to God to reveal himself to his creation. He reveals himself through revelations. If he chose not to reveal himself to the world, the world would be in complete darkness. But he took the initiative, you see, going back to the Garden of Eden. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? Son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Come up, thou and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel, all men, no women present, and worship ye afar off. That's the main point of why we are here today, to worship the Lord. I got a text from a brother a few days ago, and he said to me, what's the purpose of life? And I said to worship God, to love God, and then to get people saved. You don't put service before worship. It's worship, then it's service. It's worship, then it's soul winning. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord. Moses, type of Christ, has a very special relationship with the triune God. Without Moses later on, in maybe chapter 31 or 32 for memory, God said, I'm going to just destroy all of the Jews and start all over again. And Moses would intervene on behalf of the Jews. Without Jesus, we'd all be sunk. John chapter 15 or 16, he would say, without me, you can do nothing. And that's what gets up people's noses, non-Christians. They hate the idea that, first and foremost, we know we are saved. And on top of that, non-Christians hate our certainty. And they call us obnoxious, but we're not really. We know that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We have a special relationship with God via the Son. And for the Jews back in the Old Testament, they had a special relationship with Jehovah via Moses, through Moses. Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh. Not yet, but they will. Neither shall the people go up with him. A private briefing. Matthew 24. Jesus takes up two or three men with him. And he shows them what's going to come. And they ask him three questions. And that's a very uh, typical occurrence for the Lord Jesus Christ. He would give special, intimate briefings. This is a family book, you see. The Bible is a family book. You've got Moses, you've got Aaron, two brothers. You've got James and John, two brothers. You've got Andrew and Peter, two brothers. You've got David and his sons. You've got many people elsewhere in Scripture. You've got Solomon and his sons. And you've got a married couple over in the book of Acts that worked very closely together. This is a family book. And yet again, the family is under attack like never before. Three, and Moses came and told the people, all the words of the Lord. So the words have come out of the mouth of the Lord. That is inspiration. God speaks and Moses hears in the context. Later writes down what he hears. But from verse 3, he's not writing anything just yet. He's listening and he's memorizing what he has been taught. Hebrews says not to forsake, not to forsake the gathering of yourselves together or with other people. Because basically for the first century, the apostles were receiving, again, audible revelations. It would take the apostles 65 years to write the New Testament. So had you got saved back in the book of Acts, like the Ethiopian eunuch, and of course he was the exception and then just disappeared and did your own thing, although you were saved, you wouldn't grow because you need the words of the Lord in order to grow. Moses came 
told the people all the words of the Lord. Paul said he didn't fail, he didn't shirk, he didn't uh, uh, fail when it came to preaching the whole oracles of God and the entire doctrine of Christ, the full oracles of God, are only relevant to the church. For example, you don't stand up and speak to an unsaved man, or you don't sit down with an unsaved person and give them a verse-by-verse -verse Bible study. This isn't for them. If they're not born again, this is a sacred book. It's only after they are saved. Do you tell them everything? And here Moses isn't being neglectful. He's telling the Jews everything that God told him, like Paul. We'll say over in Acts chapter 20. All the words of the Lord and all the judgments. There's two sides to every coin. The covenant that the Jews would enter into, first and foremost, would be necessary for them to believe that God is God, obviously. But then they'd have to walk with him. Walk a very fine line with him. Now for the Old Testament, if you started to backslide, if you started to breach the Sabbath, or if you failed to circumcise your sons, or if you started to eat pork or stuff like that, you were cut off. Just cut off, put to death. Now for the New Testament, if you start to backslide, it's not so strict, it's not so stern, is it? For the New Testament, if you backslide, God will start to chastise you, maybe put you on your sickbed for a while. If you confess your sins, Matthew 18, James chapter 5, and also 1 John chapter 1, God will restore you, heal you, put you back on your feet. But if you refuse, if you refuse to repent, confess your sins, then there is a sin unto death. So there are differences between the Old and the New Testament. And if I spend too much time thinking about this, I sometimes struggle to harmonize the two covenants, the two plans of salvation. What we do know for sure is that God has always given imputation to sinners anywhere at any time. But the walks, the relationships with the Lord, Old Testament, New Testament, are vastly different, almost impossible to harmonize. Going back to 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, you try and harmonize those three books with the Pauline epistles, good luck. It's really difficult. You try and harmonize the Gospels with the epistles, it's really difficult. People answered with one voice, so far so good, and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. Well, they thought they could honour this, they thought they could live it. They've just come out of Egypt, they've been there for over 400 years. They've seen gods in a, in a plural sense. They've been slaves in a physical sense. Moses has arrived with his brother. Jesus and John were cousins. Again, this is a family book. This is a family affair. Moses and Aaron set the Jews free. Jesus and John, in a similar sense, set the people free. Look at verse 4. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and builded an altar under the hill, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Inspiration starts with God speaking, obviously. The holy men hear God's words. Old Testaments, Apostles, New Testaments, they hear the words of the Lord, the words of the Lord are pure words, purified in the, in the furnace of the earth, furnace of the earth seven times, and I discussed this last Sunday, they then write down his words, but the Jews are going to have to wait over a thousand years to get the entire Old Testament Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, Luke chapter 6 says how Christ on one occasion prayed all night, and woke up early in the morning it says over in the Gospels on multiple occasions how he was in the temple early. Early bird catches the worm, as they say. There was no sleeping in. There were no lazy bones. 
These guys went to bed late and got up early. That's how these entrepreneurs make their money, incidentally. They don't sit around their backsides feeling sorry for themselves. They do 14 hours a day, seven days a week. They have no private life, no family time. That's why the top wealthiest people in the world are all men. Because men are happy to work five, six, sometimes seven days a week, 12, 13, 14 hours a day. They're happy to sacrifice their personal lives, whereas women are not. Women are maternal. Women want to have children. Rose up early in the morning and builded, built an altar. Later on, this will become the tabernacle, of course. Built an altar under the hill. Christ was crucified outside of the city. Twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Twenty-four elders are mentioned over in the book of Revelation. For the new earth, the Jews are going to be the custodians of the new earth. The twelve tribes are going to be mobilized during the tribulation. The body of Christ is going to inherit new Jerusalem. So Moses is building a people. This is a continuation of the initiation of a constitution. This is part of Israel's Bill of Rights. This is part of Israel's culture and inheritance. Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Not one word would fall to the ground. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And rose up early in the morning. Again, a type of Christ. And build an altar, built an altar. He's like a carpenter. Christ is a carpenter. Twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. So the Old Testament is obviously a Jewish book. Most of what you read about in the four Gospels are for the Jews under the law. I am a semi-dispensationalist, just for the record. I don't want to be a full-blown dispensationalist. And nor do I want to get into covenant theology or placement theology. I see that this is one book, but it's in two parts. And here this is about the twelve tribes of Israel. Three quarters of this book is Jewish. When Christ arrived, he's got the entire Old Testament in his hand. Luke chapter 4, he goes into the temple, reads from Isaiah. Not the original copy, of course, but he's reading from it. He's got three quarters of the Bible. Three quarters of the Bible. But Moses didn't have any of it. Abraham had none of it. Melchizedek had none of it. Enoch had none of it. Isaac, Jacob had none of it. And here we are, four and a half thousand years on from this event taking place. We've got everything. We've got both Testaments. We've got the Holy Ghost living inside of us. We've got the Father, the Son. Our names are written in heaven right now. We are so accountable. We know so much. It's, it's uh, shocking. I saw an interview a few days ago. An American journalist went to the White House was speaking to the president, the American president, and he said, Mr. President, you're so powerful, you know everything. And I thought, that's not really true, but I know what the journalist was implying. And he said, you know about UFOs, you know about Kennedy, you know about Area 51, etc., etc., etc. You know everything. And I thought, no, he doesn't. He doesn't know when the rapture is going to come, when the second coming is going to come. He doesn't know who the Antichrist is going to be, who the false prophet is going to be. He doesn't know who the two witnesses are going to be all he knows is first of all what they tell him what they want him to know and secondly what they tell him may not be completely correct civil servants have made mistakes over the years you know i know what that journalist was suggesting that as far as this system this world system is concerned yes the american president is very powerful knows an awful lot but he doesn't know everything put it this way if you are a king james bible believer if you read this book every day and believe this book and obey this book, you know more than he does. Because you know who God is. You know that you're saved. 
And you know where you're going when you die. But from the standpoint of society, yes, he's a powerful man. And here's one more quick thought. As of right now, there are five leaders that dominate this world. Five leaders. Revelation speaks about ten leaders. The ten kings which will arrive just before the second advent. But right now, you've got five leaders that control the entire world. And those five leaders, if they wanted to, could destroy this world. And you couldn't stop them. The American president has nuclear weapons. The Russian president has nuclear weapons. The British prime minister has nuclear weapons. The French president has nuclear weapons. The Chinese president has nuclear weapons. London, Washington, Paris, Moscow, Beijing, all those countries, Britain, Russia, America, France, China, control this world, and yet their power is limited. They can't do a thing unless God allows them to do so, and yet people fall over themselves when they watch these people on TV. We're so happy to meet you, Mr. President, Mr. Prime Minister, Chairman, Mr. Chairman. But as far as God is concerned, the whole world is vain. It's a drop in the ocean. Look at verse 5. And he sent young men of the children of Israel, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. Oxen, not sheep. Young men, not Levites. Israel is progressing. Israel is a young nation. Back in the Old Testament, when the Holy Ghost is mentioned, the Holy Spirit, most of your Bibles, he's referred to with a lowercase s. And this has caused confusion over the years. Why is the Holy Spirit spelt with a lowercase s? Should it be capital S? No, because for the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God was revealed, his whole office, his whole standing in the Trinity was re- wasn't fully revealed. Son of Man, over in the book of Psalms, in reference to Jesus Christ, lowercase s. Proverbs chapter 30, who is the Son of God? What is the name of God's Son? Lowercase s. Why is that? Because God was taking his time to reveal more truths to mankind. Had Moses been given everything all at once, he would have overloaded. Paul would spend three years in Arabia. Paul would be shown the third heaven. John, who went up to the mount with Jesus Christ, Luke chapter 9, with his brother James, would lean on the breast of the Lord Jesus Christ, would have to wait 70 years before God would show him the future. Revelation chapter 4, come up hither. God is no rush to do anything. And he sent young men, verse 5, of the children of Israel, not Levites, like I say, which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. So for the Old Testament, an animal would be sacrificed on behalf of the people. And I speak to people on the streets so many times, especially young people, they get offended by this. Most young people, especially young girls, hate the idea of animals being killed, having their throats cut. It could be the Jewish way or the Islamic way. This is what it comes down to. Would you rather it was the animal that died for your sins or you dying for your own sins? That's what it comes down to. God wants blood, you see. He wants blood, and I'll explain that more in a few moments. Look at verse 6. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Basins, like a bowl of some kind. Moses took half of the blood, put it in basins, and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Keep your hand there and go to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus 17, like verse 11. 
easy to remember, isn't it? 17.11 For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. It's all about the blood. If you speak to religious people, and if you ask anyone, anywhere, at any time, how to be saved, nine times out of ten, they never mention the blood. Never mention the blood. The Mormons will say, come to our steakhouse, we will speak to you more. The Jehovah's Witnesses will say, come to the Kingdom Hall, we will advise you more. If you want to become a Catholic, you go through the RCIA, which can last up to two years. If you want to become a Muslim, you go to your local mosque, and they start to explain Islam to you. And you have to have an operation if you are a man. You have to be careful what you eat, whether you are a man or a woman. You have to sit with the women if you are a woman, or the men if you are a man. It's month after month, sometimes year after year. If you are an Anglican, you have to go through a system of rites, rituals. If you want to join a Protestant denomination, it could be the Baptists, the Methodists, the Brethren. You have to sit at the back of the church and then slowly but surely get closer to the altar. You can't break bread until you've been baptised. All these rules and rituals. But it comes down to this one thing, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So for the Old Testament, like I say, the animal was sacrificed not to take away your sins. No animal could take away your sins, but only cover your sins. Because the life of the flesh is in the blood. There's something about blood which God is interested in. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. The altar here is a type of the cross for the New Testament. The animal is, of course, a type of the Lamb of God. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Go to Acts chapter 20. Now it gets very deep. Acts chapter 20. Jesus Christ is called the Lamb of God. The Antichrist is called a beast. The devil is called a lion, a dragon, a serpent. God uses animal terms to explain a much deeper meaning. And I'll explain that, I will explain that in a few more minutes. Acts chapter 20, look at verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now the aniseed is on God, verse 8, not just the Holy Ghost. Many times you can't tell the difference between the Holy Ghost and God the Father. For the Old Testament, when the Holy Ghost is mentioned, or the Holy Spirit, you're not told explicitly until... From memory, 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 9, from memory, how the Holy Ghost is God. You're not told explicitly until Matthew 28, how the Father is the Lord, how the Son is the Lord, and how the Holy Ghost is the Lord. But read it again, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves, and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, he would choose him out leaders, Acts chapter 6. Leaders come from within an assembly, not outside. You don't find people advertising for a pastor, a teacher, or a preacher. They come from within an assembly. But more importantly, they come by the Holy Ghost. To feed the church of God. To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So, two things to say. First and foremost, Jesus Christ is Almighty God, going back to Isaiah, 
chapter 9, son is given, or a child has been born, a son is given. He should be called the everlasting father, the mighty God, the prince of peace, so on and so forth. Elsewhere, that term mighty God is found over in Jeremiah. And that term mighty God in Hebrew is El Gabor. El being Elohim. Jesus Christ is called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So we have no problem reading this and exegeting it to be in reference to Jesus Christ's blood being from God. But other people say this, that God the Father has blood, which is problematic. Because God is first and foremost omnipresent, obviously, everywhere at the same time. But on top of that, God is not material. He is a non-physical being. He is invisible to a visible universe. God the Father is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But Jesus Christ, Hebrews chapter 10, is given a body in time. When he was conceived, he was given a body. And when he was conceived, he was body, soul, and spirit. So yes, Jesus Christ is God Almighty. But don't read verse 28 and think that God the Father has blood. Or the Holy Ghost has blood. God the Holy Ghost is a spirit. The word ghost means spirit. God the Father is a spirit. Invisible, like I say, to a visible universe. Isn't material. Is a non-physical being. Go to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Many times in the Old Testament, when it speaks about the Lord's heart being grieved, being broken, when it speaks about him stretching out his arms, hands all day long, or his feet, which we'll look at shortly from uh, Exodus chapter 24, God is basically using what is referred to as anthropomorphical language, basically. We are people, we are humans, we relate to each other with words. Unlike animals who groan, and make noises. We use words to communicate. So God will use anthropomorphical language. A bit of a mouthful. To explain who he is and what he is. God is a spirit. So I don't believe that God the Father has blood. Or God the Holy Ghost has blood. God the Son, yes. God the Son was given a body in time. Hebrews chapter 10. Not before time. So don't stretch. Acts 20, 28. Let's keep reading. First John chapter 5. First John chapter 5. Look at 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. It's as simple as that. Belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And put your faith solely in him alone in order to be saved. I got a quote from Arthur Pink. A controversial American Calvinist. Long dead. He said this. If you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Or if you think you are saved by your faith in him alone. You are not saved. That's heresy. That's extreme, Lordship salvation. You can't go beyond faith in the blood of Christ alone in order to be saved. But these guys hate the idea of someone just trusting in Christ alone to be saved. They say you have to live it. But didn't the Pharisees live it? Didn't the Pharisees live it? Satan was living inside of those Pharisees. And yet they were lost. They were living it, but they were lost. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Capital S, because... By this time, at the end of the first century, we know that the Word of God became flesh. The Word of God is the Son of God, second member of the Trinity. But Old Testament, Son of God, lowercase s, and also Spirit of God, lowercase s. Look at verse 6. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is a Spirit that beareth witness. 
because the spirit is truth. So water goes back to Christ's first birth, his first physical birth, which relates him to Mary. And that's why he's called the son of man in reference to his physical mother. But the blood goes back to his father's blood. His father's blood was given to Christ. Every child born has its father's blood. But God the Father doesn't have any blood. When Jesus Christ was conceived, he was body, soul, and spirit. The Holy Ghost came upon Mary to teach that God the Father has a body, soul, and spirit, and the Holy Ghost has a body, soul, and spirit, and therefore blood running through their veins is what the Mormons teach. But that's not Bible. When Christ was conceived in the womb of Mary, son of man, obviously he has blood. But his blood is his father's blood. But his father doesn't have blood himself. Try and understand that if you can. This is he that came by water, first birth, and blood, being his father's blood. Even Jesus Christ, not by water only. This also goes back to uh, John chapter 3, the new birth. But by water and blood. And it is a spirit that beareth witness, because the spirit is truth. In fact, go to John chapter 3. I think I slightly misquoted that. Uh, John chapter 3, as far as the new birth is concerned, it's very similar. John chapter 3, look at verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, like water birth. Jesus Christ was born to Mary. His initial birth is a result, or came as a result of a water birth, putting him in the line of Mary. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit, second birth. Blood of Christ, of course. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Go back to First John chapter 5. So one more time. Verse 6. This is he that came by water and blood. He's linked to Mary. He's linked to the Father. Even Jesus Christ, not by water only, not just the son of Mary, which is what the Quran calls him. The Quran quotes the son of Mary, and they get that from Mark, chapter 6 from memory. But by water and blood, he has a link to mankind through his physical mother, and a link to, to God, his father, through heaven, of course. There's two parts to Christ, two aspects to his nature, son of man, son of God. Human and divine. Can you understand that? No, you cannot understand that. But you're told to believe it. And it is a spirit, Holy Ghost, that beareth witness, because the spirit is truth. Look at verse 7. For there are three that bear a record in heaven. The Father, the Word, pre the Incarnation, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. They all agree in one. Look at verse 8. And there are three that bear witness in earth. The spirit, and the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Go back to John chapter 3. I'm not quite finished with this yet. John chapter 3. It's all about the blood. Any religion that doesn't teach you are saved by the blood. God's blood. Acts chapter 20. Because Jesus Christ is God. And the blood of course comes from the Father. But the Father in heaven is a spirit. Spirits don't have bodies. Spirits can appear in a physical form. We call that a Christophany or a Theophany. But God the Father, the Holy Ghost, don't have physical bodies. You couldn't touch God the Father. You couldn't touch the Holy Ghost. When they appear back in the Old Testaments, and most of the appearances in the Old Testament are Christophanies, yes, you can dine with those appearances, and Abraham would dine with those, uh, with, uh, those or that appearance when God appeared to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 19. He dined. With him, in fact, make that chapter 18, chapter 19. One of the three messengers goes up to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and it says how they ate with Lot, slept, so on and so forth. But John chapter 3, uh, from 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, 
except a man be born of water and of the spirit. Water here is your first birth, not a baptismal formula, which most churches believe, and of the spirit, new birth. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, first birth. And that which is born of the spirit, second birth, is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Look at verse 6 again. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Now, let me say this in the few moments that I have left before we finish the service. That basically, half of the blood, and I will explain this more next Sunday, half of the blood pictures one's down payment. The rest of the blood will be applied to our standing in Christ at the rapture or resurrection. So basically, it's like this. From verse 6, Moses takes half of the blood. Half goes into basins, and half he puts... On the altar. The altar is a picture of the cross for the New Testament. Although I am saved right now from all of my past, present and future sins, I'm still physically in my body on the earth. I don't get my full reward, inheritance, until I die. And that is found over in Ephesians chapter 1, which I will speak about next week. So basically, half of the blood will picture one's down payment for their salvation now. But the other half of the blood will be put to your account and will become relevant in a literal and final uh, sense upon death. I will explain that, Lord willing, more next Sunday. Please go back to the first few verses from Exodus chapter 24, and I want to add some additional thoughts, if I may. Exodus 24, Exodus 24, look at verse 1 again. And he said unto Moses, God speaking, Come up unto the Lord, triune Lord, thou and Aaron, Moses and Aaron are two biological brothers, Nadab and Abihu, also two biological brothers, and 70 of the elders of Israel. If you hold to tradition concerning these Septuagints, how around 200 BC or thereabouts, 70 Jewish scholars would translate the Old Testament, written in Hebrew of course, into Greek in Egypt, then you are of the belief that the Septuagint predates Christ. I don't believe that, but they hold to that belief. And verses such as this, 70, become legitimate. They like to suggest that God uses groups of people, like here. 70 elders of Israel, like men. For the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ would also use 70. And worship ye afar off. Revelation chapter 4 says that everything has been created first and foremost for the glory of God. And secondly, that his creation would worship him. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh. Neither shall the people go up with him. Acts chapter 4 says, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So once again, Moses is a type of Messiah. And Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. But of course later on they will. Verse 3, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. So God speaks. We call this oral tradition. And as he speaks, his words are going through the air, obviously. Those that have ears to hear will hear it. Those that have eyes to see will see it. And if the hearts are right, they will receive it. 
Look at verse 4 again. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning, and builded an altar under the hill, and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Keep your hand there, and go to Galatians chapter 2. So Moses and Aaron are two biological brothers. Two of Aaron's sons uh, are also cited as being present, Nadab and Abihu. But from Galatians chapter 2, Galatians chapter 2, again scripture with scripture, it's the only way to get it. Look at verse 9. And when James, Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Go back to Exodus 24. Exodus 24, look at verse 4 again. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. So first and foremost, he hears the words of the Lord, coming from the triune Lord, obviously, the triune God. He hears the words. He now writes down the words. And on top of that, it says how he would build an altar under the hill. And 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. So for the Old Testament, pillars are literal, linking up to the tabernacle. Revelation speaks about the tabernacle in heaven. 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is... The church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Go back to the book of Exodus. So for now, we are the house of God. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And you see how it works, don't you? For the Old Testament, it's a physical building. It's a physical priesthood system. For today, it's a spiritual building. It's a spiritual priesthood system. But they go side by side and very nicely as well. Look at verse 6 again. And Moses took half of the blood... And put it in basins. And half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Keep your hand there. And go to Ephesians chapter 1. Without the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of sins. Any religion that denies a sinner is saved by the shed blood of someone like the Saviour. Going back to the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Such a religion is worthless. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And I briefly touched on this last Sunday before running over time. So I want to explain it further this morning. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 13. In whom ye also trusted concerning your salvation, which incidentally took place in time, not before time. Calvinists have never been able to correctly understand this, explain it. They think you were chosen before the foundation of the world, that you were saved before you even existed. That is incorrect, of course. The only way that God would ever save anyone is through a third party, like the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word of God. In whom ye also trusted, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. After that, ye heard the Word of Truth. They heard it, going back to what Moses was privileged to hear, and he would preach what Jehovah told him. And Paul would preach what Jesus told him. Again, the similarities, the types and shadows are so numerous. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Gospel means good news, your salvation. In whom also, after that ye believed, the just should it by faith, ye were sealed with a holy 
spirit of promise. You're now safe in the beloved, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. The term earnest means a down payment. If you want to purchase a property in the UK, you have to put down 10%. If you want to purchase a car, they like you to put a deposit down. It doesn't have to be 10%, but they want a deposit of some kind. And then later on, you go to the dealership and you make the additional payment, the final payment, and the car is yours. Or after 25 years of paying off your monthly mortgage, the property is now yours. But as far as God is concerned, he's purchased us. Uh, he's purchased us with his own blood. His blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 28, was in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the word of God. The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Lord Jesus Christ is not God the Father. God the Father is not the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is not the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is not the Lord Jesus Christ. This is primitive stuff. This shouldn't need to be said. And yet it does need to be said due to a new plague of heresies continuing to do the rounds. Which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession. He's purchased us. He's died for us. By his precious blood are we redeemed. We are now a royal priesthood. Kings and priests over, uh, over in uh, Revelation chapter 1 it says we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Purchase possession unto the praise of his glory. Go back to the book of Exodus. So for the Old Testament, the Jews are a literal people, obviously, following a literal man like Moses. For today, we are a literal people following a literal man being Messiah, of course, being the Lord Jesus Christ. 24-6 again. A Moses took half of the blood, like a down payment, and put it in basins. Here, uh, basins are a type of our bodies, if you will. And half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So Christ dies on the cross, and he would say, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. At that moment, he dies. Obviously, his body goes into the tomb. His soul goes into the ground, and into hell it goes eventually. His spirit goes right back to be with the Lord. When he goes into the ground, he takes our sins and leaves our sins in hell. After three days, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will resurrect the Lord Jesus Christ and put them back together again, body, soul, and spirit. So for here and now, I am saved, and if you are born again, you are saved. But you're still living in a fallen world. Your blood's still no good. Go to Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17, which we looked at last Sunday, and it's easy to remember, Leviticus chapter 17, like 1711. 1711. 1711 for the life of the flesh is in the blood basically meaning its blood or the blood sustains its life if you are healthy your body is healthy if your blood is good you are good if your blood is no good you are no good if your blood is bad you are bad it could be leukemia it could be diabetes it could be a, a, a whole number of illnesses and once your blood goes bad you are bad for the life of the flesh is in the blood the blood is good. The blood keeps you alive. But once the blood starts to deteriorate, your body starts to break down. The wages of sin is death because your blood is no good. And that's negative, of course. But the gift of God is eternal life, everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is good. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Acts chapter 20. Jesus Christ is God Almighty. He that sees 
The Son sees the Father. He that sees me sees the Father. The Father and I are one, not in the sense of singleness, but in the sense of unity. God Almighty was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. It's the blood. Without the shedding of blood, and I mean literal shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sins. Any religion that denies that isn't worth tuppence. It could be the JWs, it could be the Mormons, it could be the Catholics, it could be the Episcopalians, it could be the Freemasons, it could be the Hindus, the Sikhs, the Taoists, I don't care. Any religion that denies that you are saved by the blood, and here linked to the flesh, going back to Christ physically dying, any religion that denies that is worthless. And I, God speaking, have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. So the altar, obviously, is a type of the cross, for it is the blood, the blood, Christ's precious blood, that maketh an atonement for the soul. Go back to the book of Exodus, meaning to depart, meaning to exit, meaning to leave. Look at verse 7 from Exodus chapter 24. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, all that the Lord hath said will we do and be obedient. And he took the book of the covenant, covenant, testament. He's written it down, verse 4. He heard it, verse 3. The prophets heard the words of the Lord, which are pure words, purified in a furnace of the earth seven times. They heard the words of the Lord. If you love me, keep my words. Those words were then written down. And he took the book of the covenant and read, and read in the audience of the people. Two million, perhaps three million. Whitfield was quite a preacher. When he would preach, he could be heard four or five miles away. John Wesley would travel on horseback all over the UK. And he once said this, he said, if anybody speaks for more than 15 minutes, it's a sin. And he would have conversations with people. And after 15 minutes, he would just stop people. That's enough talking, he'd say. Too much talking is sinful. That's what he would say. And his audience was shocked. And they said, All that the Lord hath said will we do, and be obedient. Keep your hand there. And go to Matthew chapter 13. By thy words, you are justified. By thy words, you are condemned. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 51. Jesus saith unto them, have ye understood all these things? They say unto him, Yea, Lord. But did they really understand all these words, all these things, concerning the end of time? Well, they said they did. And here, go back to the book of Exodus. The people are in agreement with what Moses has told them. Down the line, like the last few chapters from the book of Deuteronomy, Moses would make it very clear that in the last days the Jews would depart from Jehovah, do wicked, abominable things, would kill their own children physically, worship other gods, literally, would, on the one hand, give lip service to Jehovah, while turning around and, den and denying him. Denying the only Lord God that bought them, Second Peter 2, 1. And he says, if you do that, and when you do, do that. Blindness will come, madness will come, you will have infections, diseases, you'll have tumours, in your private parts, and that must have put the fear of God into the children of Israel, and yet they wouldn't be obedient. And here, one more time, took the book of the covenant, read in the audience of the people, many people, of course, and they said as one people, 
all that the Lord hath said will we do. They wouldn't even come near. Paul says how we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet like the apostles, New Testament, they thought that what Christ had told them, they understood. Later on, he'd have to remind them of cardinal truths like his death, burial and resurrection. But at that moment in time, Matthew 13, 51, they thought they understood it. And here, the people seem to accept what Moses has told them physically, has written down also. So basically, you've got two lines. You've got the oral tradition and the written word of God. You've got to watch that because the Catholics come along and say there's an unofficial tradition, oral tradition, which supersedes scripture. That is heresy. That's condemned over in Matthew, excuse me, that uh, Mark, Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, the Lord Jesus Christ condemns that. But to this day, Jews still believe that. Orthodox Jews have their unofficial tradition, which they think is justifiable, and it runs parallel to scripture. Church of Rome are the same, and of course both are incorrect. All that the Lord hath said will we do, later on they would not, and be obedient. They were far from being obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. It goes back to the blood again. The precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants a sacrifice. Go back to Cain and Abel. On one occasion, these two brothers are fighting, arguing. Cain is the aggressive one. He's the eldest. And he's jealous of his brother. His brother brings an animal to the Lord, probably a lamb, and Cain brings fruit to the Lord. And when the Lord sees Cain's offering, it's inferior. But when he sees Abel's, when he sees Abel's, he receives it because it's livestock, it's animal, but more importantly, it's blood. It's a type of the blood of Christ. The quickest way to find out whether somebody is speaking the truth, ask them, how do you go to heaven? And you watch them start to fidget start to look very confused, start to scratch their heads. It's very rare to get a quick answer, very rare. Most people say get baptised, which of course you haven't got time to do, you're dying, you're bleeding to death on a street, on the street, in the street, in the gutter, you're bleeding to death, you've been hit by a car. Others say uh, confess Christ to unsaved people, but how can you? You've had a stroke, you can't speak. Others will say keep the Ten Commandments, but you can't, you're dying. Others will say, uh, do the RCIA, but you can't, you're dying. Others will say, become a good Muslim, sit with the men in mosque, abstain from this and that, but you can't, you're dying. Or the Jews will say, well, do your uh, your first uh, communion, they don't call it communion, bar mitzvah, that's what I'm looking for, do your bar mitzvah, and if you do your bar mitzvah, you're good to, uh, good to go, but you can't, you're dying. And you see how silly it is, don't you? The JWs will say, come along to our kingdom hall. We will teach you the things of the Lord. They don't call him Lord. They call him Jehovah, which incidentally isn't found once in the New Testament. But they don't tell you that, of course, in their travesty of a Bible. The Mormons will say, come along to our steakhouse and we will teach you to become godlike. And you have to wear Masonic underwear. I'm not kidding. That's what they believe. Men and women. No blood. No shed blood. No faith in the shed blood. All of these religions are wicked, apostate, and totally flawed. Moses, Messiah, took the blood, blood of Christ, sprinkled it on the people, here in a physical sense, for us in a spiritual sense, and yet in a way that I don't understand, 
Christ shed his physical blood on the cross, went into the ground, like I say. His blood was shed on the earth, on the ground. He had no blood left in him. And somehow his blood reaches the Holy of Holies in a way that I don't understand. And somehow, in some way, he goes into the ground. And I mean hell, H-E-L-L, not Hades. He goes into hell and he takes our sins with him, leaves our sins in hell, resurrects the righteous dead, those that were waiting for him, and back to the third heaven he goes. And somehow, in a way that we don't really understand, our blood, or his blood, I should say, his blood is somehow used in a literal way, not a figurative way, in a literal way, to wash away all of our past, present, and future sins. I don't understand that. Nobody understands that. But that's what the scripture teaches. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenants, here, Old Testaments, but for Christ, New Testaments, which the Lord hath made with you, concerning all these words. So at best you could say this from verses, uh, verses 3 and also verses 7. They are accepting what has been done for them. We accept what Messiah has done for us. We receive what he's done for us by faith. And after we are born again, we should confess him, obviously, to those that are not saved. That's where faith and works come into the equation. But for the Old Testament, it's different in a sense, and yet it's very similar in type. Moses is, of course, Christ, the blood. Old Testament is a picture of the blood of Christ. The people are a picture of the church. The uh, children of Israel are in the wilderness for the Old Testament. The church today is called out. We are a called out people, meaning the ecclesia. Let's keep reading on. Look at verse 9. Then went up Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. It's a repeat from verse 1, but it's not. It's a continuation. Put it this way. They go up, they come down. They go up, they come down. They go up, they come down. I got one commentary that says Moses went up seven times. On average, seven or eight times he goes up and he comes down. Then went up Moses and Aaron. Again, two biological brothers. Nadab and Abihu. Two biological brothers. The family affair, isn't it? And 70 of the elders of Israel. And yet I don't accept the Septuagint belief statement that somehow 70 Jewish scholars went to Egypt or were, or were in Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt, to be more specific around the 2nd century BC, would translate the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. I think it's more likely that the Septuagint was translated 200 AD by a church leader by the name of Origen. And Origen is probably the author of the Septuagint. And someone like Eusebius came along later on who baptised Constantine and added some more material uh, to the Septuagint. But it comes down to this basically, and I'll say this as a quick footnote. If you are a King James Bible believer, you should be aware that all of the modern Bibles lean heavily on the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And every scholar, preacher and teacher that rejects the King James Bible believes that the Septuagint was translated BC, like before Christ. Whereas if you are a King James Bible believer... It's easier and more logical and probably easier to prove that the Septuagint came after Christ, like 200 AD. And again, people like Origen and perhaps Eusebius are the authors of such a book. Look at verse 10. This is fascinating. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. They saw 
Moses, Aaron, two brothers, they saw Nadab, Abihu, the God of Israel. Keep your hand there and go to John chapter 1. They saw the God of Israel. Who did they see? John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Look at verse 18. No man hath seen God at any time. Jesus is speaking. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No man hath seen God at any time. Who is he speaking about? The Father, of course. Get this clear, people. No man has seen the Father, or the spirits, I might also add, at any time, period. The only begotten Son, the Word of God, which is in the bosom of the Father, there's a great picture of intimacy, he hath declared him. Go to uh, Genesis, let's see now, Genesis 32. I read this a few nights ago. Genesis 32, they saw the God of Israel. No man has seen God at any time. What's going on? Is it a contradiction? Genesis 32, Genesis 32, look at verse 24. And Jacob was left alone, and they wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day, a man. Elsewhere, it speaks about the devil being a man. Over in Isaiah chapter 14. Jacob, Israel, was left alone, and they wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Look at verse 27. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him, and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. Who are you? Are you Elohim? Are you Jehovah? Are you the I am that I am? Way back in the Old Testament, pre the law, God hasn't yet revealed himself as Jehovah. Hasn't yet revealed himself as three and yet one, one and yet three. And here Jacob quite rightly wants to know who he is dealing with. What is going on? And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. Look at verse 30. And Jacob called the name of that place Peniel. For I have seen God. For I have seen God. For I have seen God face to face. Face to face. And my life is preserved. Go back to the book of Exodus. 10 again. And they saw the God of Israel. Four people at least, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone. A sapphire stone is a blue stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Now, what you've got is this. You've got four men seeing the God of Israel. They see a Christophany. They see Jesus Christ, because God the Father is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. No man hath seen God at any time. John 1.18, only the Son of God, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No man hath seen the Holy Ghost, because the Holy Ghost, like God the Father, is a spirit. God is not material. When I say God, I mean the Father and the Spirit. God is not material. God is a non-physical being. And when it speaks about feet, they are seeing the feet of the Messiah. It's like this. Pre the incarnation, it's my belief that every appearance of deity 
It could be Genesis 32, which we just looked at. It could be when Abraham saw God Almighty from uh, Genesis chapter 18. It could be other appearances throughout Scripture. Every time the Jews saw Jehovah, they saw Jesus Christ. But on top of that, on top of that, they got a glimpse of his incarnational sense, his physical appearance. If you think of, on one occasion, Jesus would say how Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Well, he saw something when he offered up Isaac, his son. Abraham saw something. And of course, Abraham, as we all know, is a type of the father. Isaac is a type of the son. He saw something. He saw something at that moment of sacrifice, which of course the Lord stepped in and stopped. Jacob, Israel, saw something, saw someone. What is your name? Who are you? On one occasion, Joshua would say to a man, again, all of the angels in scripture are men. Who are you? Are you for us or against us? And he would say, I am the commander, the commander of the Lord. And old Joshua went straight down in his face, get off your shoes. And he took off his shoes. On one occasion, Moses would go up to see the Lord. And we did that many weeks ago. Take off thy shoes. You're on holy ground. So every Christophany, every Theophany, with the exception of people like Gabriel or Michael, but probably 85% of appearances in the Old Testament when it comes down to, or when it concerns Almighty God, is in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not God the Father. Matthew chapter 5 says how the pure in heart will one day see God in the context of the Father, but that won't kick in until the thousand year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's on the new earth with the redeemed Jew. He's, on, he's in New Jerusalem with the body of Christ. And they saw the God of Israel. They saw Jesus Christ. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone. Like I say, a sapphire stone is blue. And as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. So they see God in heaven. They see God on the earth. Keep your hand there and go to Revelation 21. I don't claim to understand all of this. Uh, nobody understands everything about Almighty God. Christ would spend three and a half years preaching to his apostles. And even after he died, he was still giving them more revelations because they didn't get it all at once. You couldn't get it all at once. It would be impossible to get it all at once. Revelation 21. Revelation uh, 21. Look at verse 19. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. New Jerusalem for the body of Christ. New earth for the Jew. The first foundation was jasper. The second, sapphire. Blue. A blue stone. So New Jerusalem is synonymous with Almighty God. And if I wasn't a Bible believer, I would be a pantheist. Trying to understand how all these things fit together. I don't really understand. But I see a sapphire is connected with New Jerusalem. I see a sapphire is connected with Mount Sinai. I see a sapphire connected with the children of Israel for the Old Testament. And I see a sapphire connected with New Jerusalem uh, for the body of Christ. Like I say, go back to the book of Exodus. Good night again. Then went up Moses, Naaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel invited up. Didn't just barge in, incidentally. And they saw the God of Israel, Jesus Christ. And there was under his feet, as it were, paved work of a sapphire stone. A stone is under his feet of some kind. And as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. So they see him on the mount, first and foremost. They see, I believe, a glimpse of him in glory. They are trying to 
visualize what they are seeing. And once again, Moses, the writer of this, does a tremendous work explaining what he is seeing. Also, we need to remind ourselves that many times the way that God uses to uh, explain himself is to the term referred to as anthropomorphical. Because God speaks to man using words. Animals, like I said last week, communicate with groans, grunts, noises. God uses words to communicate with his people. So when it says feet, we know what it's in reference to. In Revelation it says how Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. <coughs> I don't dismiss that. I take it literally. But also, I'm also aware of what is going on when it comes to God wanting to relate a much deeper uh, issue using words which we can understand. Look at verse 11. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand, didn't kill anyone. And yet on one occasion, an animal was carrying the ark and the ark got, uh, or the animal perhaps got excited or one of the people watching the animal dragging the ark of the covenant. He got excited, touched the ark and the Lord killed him because you're dealing with a holy God. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. And again, if you don't believe me, just ask anyone, anywhere, at any time, how to go to heaven. And you'll be shocked, stunned, and embarrassed how they all omit, all omit the blood of Christ, unless, of course, they are Bible-believing Christians. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, the leaders of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God, and it eats and drink. John 21, come and dine. John 21, the Lord Jesus Christ appears to his apostles and he says, Children, have you any fish, any meat? Children, Isaiah chapter 9 says, Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, wonderful, Counselor. Why is he called Everlasting Father? Because he's Israel's Everlasting Father. John 21, he's dealing with the Jews. John 21, there are no Christians present. Christians, Christianity, a Christian the word Christian doesn't appear until Acts chapter 11. Jesus Christ is Israel's everlasting father. For the church, he's our brother. Our father is God the father. Get that straight. If you get that straight, you will never, ever be moved. One more time and I'll close. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. If you are his, he loves you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. If you are his, he has you in his hand in reference to Jesus Christ, and God the Father has you in his hand. John chapter 10. The Holy Ghost, and we looked at that a little while ago from Ephesians chapter 1, has sealed you into the body of Christ. You can't get out. Once Noah and his family went on to the ark, it says how the Lord shut them in, sealed them in. They couldn't get out. It was impossible. Or look at it this way. When the American president gets into his car called the beast, he can't let himself out. Did you know that? He cannot let himself out. It is impossible. His door is around six to eight inches thick. It can withstand a bomb, a grenade, any kind of chemical attack. Laser. A laser. Mm. That door is so heavy. That door is so thick. He can't, he cannot let himself out. He has to be let out by one of his secret service agents. That's a crude analogy, but it goes some way. I think, in explaining how our salvation works. We can't break out of the body of Christ. We can fail the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Jews would fail Jehovah many times back in the Old Testament. But they still remained the people of God. 
Romans chapter 11 says how the gifts and calling of God are without, without repentance. A Jew, whether he believes in Jehovah or not, is still a Jew. A Christian man or woman, whether or not he walks with the Lord, is still a Christian. You belong to him, he belongs to you. So these verses from Exodus 24 deal one more time, one last time, with at least four people going up to worship Almighty God. You've got, like I say, two biological brothers, and one of those brothers is a father who has two sons, going back to Jesus Christ being Israel's everlasting father. They are invited up to worship Almighty God. That is timeless, of course. Moses alone, verse 2, is allowed to go up to the Lord, whereas the others are not yet permitted to go up and see the Lord, but later they will. Moses hears the words of the Lord, verse 3, and like I say, he will speak the words of the Lord to the people of Israel. Jesus Christ would speak the words of the Lord to the people of Israel. Later on, Moses would write down the words of the Lord, verse 4. Later on, the apostles would write down the words of the Lord. He builds an altar called the tabernacle. There are 12 literal pillars for today, or for the early church. The apostles, Galatians 2, were the pillars, the foundation, if you will. And also 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 5, young men are offered, or are instructed to offer sacrifices unto the Lord. For today, we offer our bodies as a sacrifice to the Lord. Moses takes half of the blood, puts it in basins. Basins are pictures of our bodies, if you will, a down payment, if you will. And the other half he puts on the altar, in reference to one day Christ coming to die for the sins of the world. All of the Old Testament sacrifices were types and shadows of what would eventually come down the line, of course. He takes the book of the covenant, verse 7, reads it in the audience of the people. He's now reading out what he's been shown earlier on. They hear what he's read out. And also he's written it before he reads it out, obviously. And when they hear it, they say, yes, we like this. All that you say and do, we will do and be obedient. Well, of course they wouldn't, but they at least are wanting to do so, like all Christians. Takes the book of the covenant, reads it in the audience of the people, like I say, and they agree to what they are hearing. Takes the blood, sprinkles it on the people, verse 8. And says, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Old Testament, literal blood for today, spiritually speaking. But at one stage, 2,000 years ago, physical blood was shed for our sins. And that physical blood has somehow been put to our account. To go beyond that is really difficult. 9, 10, 11, they see God Almighty, not the Father. Because no man has seen the Father. One day they will. They see God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, not the Holy Ghost. They see him. And they eat and drink with him. Intimacy, fellowship, you can't really understand it. And yet, if you're born again, you know what I'm talking about. We break bread every Sunday. We will now break bread. It's important to us. And if you are a Christian, you should break bread on a regular basis. Just a quick clarification from a few weeks ago from Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. Look at verse 19 again, please. The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Exodus deals specifically with the Jews in the wilderness, whereas Leviticus deals with the Jews in the land. There is a distinction to be made, and therefore the house of the Lord, verse 19, is obviously connected to the tabernacle. And therefore, I think a few weeks ago, I made the statement that the first fruits of the land dealt with livestock, which is incorrect. That would be relevant to Leviticus, with the Jews in the land. But here, first fruits deal with just that fruits from the land concerning the Jews 
in the wilderness. One more time, the first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. Tabernacle, which we looked at last Sunday, and eventually that will become the temple. Thou shalt not seethe a kid in his mother's milk. You won't boil a kid like a goat in its mother's milk. So I just wanted to make that point uh, many times when we look at these verses every Sunday live. I might add, you're trying to deal with multiple subjects in a limited time span. Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Look at verse 9 again, please. Then went up Moses and Aaron, and Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. Just a quick footnote also uh, from what we looked at last week concerning the so-called Septuagint predating Christ. And the word Septuagint in Latin means 70. So sometimes you have to be careful when you fall back on historians. Nothing wrong with historians. I love history, but don't overdo it. Don't overplay it. And they saw, verse 10, the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone. And as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. They saw the God of Israel, like Moses and Aaron, like Nadab and Abihu. On top of that, these 70 were also present when Jesus Christ goes up to the Mount of the Transfiguration. Or when he appears on the Mount and the Transfiguration takes place. You've got no more than just three brothers. Moses, for 40 years, would lead the Jews all over the wilderness, all around the wilderness, all over Arabia. And right at the end of his 40-year period in service, like at the 11th hour, the Lord said to Moses, you're not going any further. For 40 years, he struggled, strained, stressed to deal with the people of Israel. And after 40 years of active service, the Lord said to Moses, you're not going into the promised land. He would beg the Lord to go into the promised land and God said to him no you failed me on multiple occasions like the rock incidents and that rock of course is a type of Christ and elsewhere you were told to do this you were told to do that and you didn't your brother was guilty of idolatry and we'll look at that in a few weeks time so poor old Moses doesn't go into the promised land however however God Almighty would suspend such a sentence and it's my belief that Moses would see Jesus Christ not only at the, at the Mount of Transfiguration, which we also looked at last week, but will also be one of the two witnesses, Revelation chapter 11. So God's grace always comes through. But they saw the God of Israel under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone. And also we did that last week. A sapphire stone is a blue stone, a lovely stone. And on top of that, as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Now, I don't really understand this. You've got basically two things going on. You've got four people, at least, seeing the God of Israel being Jesus Christ, a Christophany. They are seeing this sapphire stone. They are seeing uh, the body of heaven in his clearness. They're seeing God Almighty in heaven, I believe, and also on the top of the mount. 11 again, and upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. So multiple things going on. The Jews, like four people, would see God and would also survive elsewhere it was made very clear that you couldn't see God and survive keep your hand there and go to first Timothy first Timothy on one occasion Jesus Christ would say to his apostles whom uh, do men say that I am and he got many different answers and here we are 2,000 years on still asking the same question I saw a debate uh, this week I watched it over three nights first Timothy chapter 6 please it was a three-hour debate concerning the Trinity, 
versus Islam, their oneness, Unitarian position, very basically and very quickly, or very briefly I should say, you had two people, you had a Christian, an American, debating a Muslim, a Brit, somewhere in America, a three-hour debate, like I say, and basically it surrounded the subject of who is Jesus Christ? Who is the Holy Ghost? Who is God the Father? And for three hours, who is he? What is he? How can we understand him? It was pitiful to watch. Pitiful to watch. And right at the end of this three-hour debate, a guy got up, a former Muslim, now turned Christian, and he said to the British Muslim who had flown from London uh, to take part in this debate, are you saved? Do you know where you're going when you die? And this Muslim, about six foot three, very big guy, big mouth, loud mouth, arrogant, conceited sort of a guy, very much showing off his Arabic and his Hebrew and a bit of Greek just to throw into the mix, said, no, I don't know where I'm going when I die. And I thought, isn't that typical? He could quote the Quran back to front. He could quote Deuteronomy 6.4 in Hebrew and some verses from the New Testament in Greek. Let's give him a round of applause. But he couldn't tell you where he was going upon death. We know where we're going when we die. We've already passed from death unto life. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life right now. And we are already reigning in the third heaven. First Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 13 please. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, held it together, didn't lose his temper, unlike the Apostle Paul, Acts 23. <coughs> didn't cuss, didn't curse, didn't swear, was cool and calm and collective, that thou keep this commandment without spots, unrebukable, unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, second advent, not the rapture, which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, potentate meaning a sovereign, like a prince or a king, someone with absolute authority, the king of kings, and lord of lords, and not to mention god of gods, I mean, for three hours, these two guys went back and forth. Who is Jesus Christ? Who is the Holy Ghost? How can Jesus Christ be man and God? We can't understand it. You were never told to understand it. Why is it that so many people are unable to comprehend who Jesus Christ is? Do you realize that without Jesus Christ, Islam would fall flat on its face? Have you ever thought about that? I have, many times. When Muhammad came along, 6th century, the Church of Rome was very powerful, obviously, dominated the entire world. Pockets of real biblical Christianity, but not a lot for over a thousand years. The world was in darkness. The Church of Rome were dominating the entire world. And it's like this. Had Muhammad come along, who was illiterate, incidentally, and said, well, I am a successor of Abraham, and from Abraham to Ishmael, and then me, we have a trinity, quote-unquote. I am the final prophet, so-called. It wouldn't have got off the ground. He needs Jesus Christ. Islam today needs Jesus Christ to be legitimate. I could say so much about this. Look at verse 16. Who only hath immortality dwelling in the light. Now the aniseed once again is on Jesus Christ. Verse 14, verse 15. King of kings, Lord of lords, and also God of gods, which no man can approach unto. Now the light here is also in reference to God the Father. Semicolon. Whom no man hath seen. John 1.18 tells you that. No man has seen God at any time. Nor can see, you can't see him and survive. To whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. So one more time, verse 14. That thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable unto the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show. It's down to him 
when he wants to declare this. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. I have power to lay down my life and take it up again. I mean, that's power. On one occasion, one of Buddha's enemies came along and spat in his face. And Buddha took it, wasn't able to stop it. On one occasion, when Muhammad was in the presence of his disciples, they were literally drinking his urine. And on one occasion, when blood was spilt, they drank his blood. Literally. These are just ordinary men. And yet they are revered. Which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, who only hath immortality, life comes from him. Jesus Christ is a personification of everlasting life. That's why they hate him. That's why so many people today fail to understand who he is and what he is. How can he be God a man? How can a man die for our sins? And I showed you last week from Acts chapter 20 how God's blood was inside of him. Jesus Christ was the son of man, son of God, son of David. He's linked back to David. He's linked back to Abraham. He's linked back to Adam. He's got the keys to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Adam had the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Lost both, of course. Jesus Christ arrives on the earth. He's got both keys. Keys of the kingdom of heaven, keys to the kingdom of God. He's got the door. He is the door. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And yet, most of the world is in absolute darkness. And on top of that, they are willingly ignorant, intentionally, deliberately ignorant of who God is and what God is. Which in his times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality dwelling in the light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. Genesis chapter 1, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus Christ is dwelling in the light. He is the light. But this light is a greater light. This light is connected to the Father, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen, nor can see, not now anyway, to whom be honour and power everlasting. Amen. Go back to the book of Exodus. So, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu. Four gentlemen are seeing the God of Israel, being Jesus Christ, of course. Moses would not be allowed to go into the promised land due to his sin, due to his behaviour, going back to standing in state. But, in the mercy of God, thanks to his goodness and gracious uh, attributes, he would allow Moses to see, first and foremost, the promised land, transfiguration and also his feet will be literally in the promised land revelation chapter 11 look at verse 12 from exodus 24 and the lord said unto moses come up to me into the mounts and be there and i will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments which i have written that thou mayest teach them so god speaks first and foremost through oral tradition the words of the Lord are pure words, and he hears the words of the Lord, being Moses, of course. Later on, writes down the words of the Lord, but be mindful of this, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they are moved by the Holy Ghost. Second Peter chapter 1, of course. So Moses hears the words of the Lord. He writes down the words of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. From the beginning of the Old Testament, right up until the end of the Old Testament, you have scribes copying parts of the Old Testament very diligently, very carefully, uh, making copious copies. For the New Testament, you have what's called the papias documents. Papias means paper, and the apostles would write down, again, very carefully, very diligently, the words of the Lord, because God's words are inspired and also preserved. For the first two or three hundred years, you've got these copies going around the ancient world papias like newspaper print cheap paper basically and papias was the cheapest paper available because for the first two or three centuries 
Christianity was an underground religion. It was a prohibited religion. It was a religion for poor people. And those uh, copies were passed around very faithfully. On average, a fragment would probably last 20 years. I've got a Bible on my bookshelf. It's 14 years old. It's my open-air pulpit Bible. I purchased it back in 2005. I got hundreds of notes in both Testaments, which I haven't even preached on, actually. And it's falling apart. I use it only for the open-air pulpit. For this morning, I'm using another Bible, which is over 100 years old. A beautiful Bible uh, with some uh, good footnotes in it. And I guess this will probably last another 100 years. But here, from the book of Exodus, God is speaking to Moses once again. If you will, the Father is speaking to the Son. Moses is a type of the Messiah. And here the Lord is probably in reference to the Father, but not always. Not always, if you are a Trinitarian, you understand that sometimes a father is speaking, sometimes a spirit is speaking, sometimes the son is speaking. This is no problem for a Trinitarian. The Lord said unto Moses, verse 12, come up to me into the mount. Come on up, except you repent, you shall likewise perish. Come on up, believe on me, receive me, trust in me. It's like a personal invitation. And I will give thee tables of stone. And a law and commandments which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. So Moses will teach the children of Israel, like I say, directly and indirectly for 40 years. Almost make it into the promised land, but due to his sin and rebellion, he would forsake, he would uh, miss out, he would forfeit his inheritance, if you will, not his salvation. And here... Moses is a type of the Messiah who would spend three and a half years with his apostles, teaching them as well. Upon the death of Moses, Joshua replaces him. And of course, Joshua is another name for Jesus. And Moses rose up and his minister, Joshua, his minister, Joshua. And Moses went up into the mounts of God. So Joshua means Jesus. Jesus means Joshua. Moses is a type of the father, if you will. And here Joshua is a type of the son. You've got two Jews back in the Old Testament. You've got two Jews in the wilderness. For today, the church is a called out people. We are in the wilderness. The uh, Greek word for church is ecclesia. It means a called out people. And here Moses rose up and his minister Joshua working in pairs again. Moses and Joshua or Moses and Aaron. Jesus and John. Paul and Barnabas. Peter and John the son of Zebedee, working in pairs. And if you are a Christian, you should go out in pairs. It's not wise to go out on your own. It's too problematic, obviously. But here you've got Moses uh, rising up and his minister, meaning his assistant, Joshua. Moses went up into the Mount of God. It's now the Mount of God. He's commandeered it for his own purposes. Elsewhere it says he owns a thousand hills and the sheep on a thousand hills. And that gets quoted by our non-dispensational uh, friends to suggest that the thousand-year reign of Christ is not literal. It's ridiculous, of course, but they make that, uh, or they come to that conclusion. Because the term thousand, they believe, doesn't mean a literal period of a thousand years, and, and God owns more than a thousand hills. Every context has to be read carefully and studied. I got an email a while ago saying this, uh, James, when you do future Bible studies, you should do a more in-depth word study. To really understand the text. That doesn't work. That's not how it works. You allow the verse to interpret the verse. You allow the chapter to interpret the chapter. Script with scripture. Don't do a word study. For example, back in Genesis chapter 6. It says how it uh, grieved the Lord. How he'd made man on the face of the earth. It repented the Lord. The word repent means to be sorry. 
Elsewhere, it says how the Lord repented himself, meaning to change his mind. Elsewhere, from the book of Second uh, Corinthians, on one occasion, Paul says, show godly remorse, godly sorrow, godly repentance, meaning turn from your ungodliness, aimed at saved people, and start living a godly life. Different context, different meanings. You do a word study, it doesn't always help you. Repent, repented, repenteth, repenting, repentance. The context always defines the meaning of the word, not the word itself. Genesis 6, repentance means to be sorry, <coughs> remorse, grief. Second Corinthians chapter 8 or 9 from memory deals with turning from, quit doing wrong, start doing right. Acts chapter 20, repentance towards God, acknowledging there is only one God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, faith in the one that he sent. Faith alone in Christ alone to be saved. Get the context straight. Don't go down this word study route. It doesn't take you anywhere. And like I say, the context always explains the meaning of the verse itself. Look at verse 14, please. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us, until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. Delegation. No one man is irreplaceable. If you think of people like Margaret Thatcher, towards the end of her time in office, she was uh, convinced that nobody could replace her, that she was a one-off, and she resigned, and I was at school the day she resigned. It came, it came over the tannoy at school. Mrs Thatcher has resigned. Kids were applauding. Within five or six, seven or eight, nine or ten minutes, she's at the palace, she's seen the Queen. She's replaced. Within minutes. When uh, Kennedy was shot in 1963, he was replaced within minutes by LBJ when... Franco died in Spain. He was replaced within minutes. When uh, Reagan was shot for half an hour, 45 minutes, George H. Bush was the acting president. Nobody is irreplaceable. So delegation is the key word. Of course, Jesus Christ is a one-off. You can't replace him. He's the Lamb of God that takes with the sin of the world. And he said unto the elders, being men, not women, tarry ye here for us, wait here for us, until we come again unto you. A bit like uh, Abraham and Isaac. He would say to his uh, men. Wait here until we come again. In reference to if Isaac is sacrificed. God will resurrect him. If Jesus Christ is sacrificed. God will resurrect him. Types and shadows. So many of them. And behold Aaron and her are with you. If any man have any matters to do. Any business. Let him come unto them. So Jesus comes. Preaches to his apostles. He picks him out 12, he picks him out 70, that gives you 72. The Septuagint means 70 in Latin. All of your Bible scholars and teachers, I mean all of them, use the Septuagint. They all lean heavily on the Septuagint. The Septuagint has the Apocrypha in them. And the Apocrypha, of course, is a non-inspired group of books. Only the King James Bible believer has little interest in the Septuagint. A Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was written after Christ, not before Christ. And yet, the majority of Bible schools and colleges all over the world teach it was translated before Christ. It's not true at all. Look at verse 15. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. So God comes down to earth. That's what the kingdom of heaven means in essence. Heaven on the earth. Adam is in the garden. Adam is walking in the garden, having a relationship with God Almighty. Heaven has come to earth, if you will. He's having fellowship with God. He's got a wife. He's got 
access to the animals, he's naming the animals. Later on, he will have children. The kingdom of God has come to earth. So temporarily, Adam has the kingdom of heaven in one hand, the kingdom of God in the other hand. Jesus Christ arrives, he's got the kingdom of heaven on offer, being heaven on earth, a literal Jewish kingdom on the earth with the Messiah on the throne, governing the, the entire world. And also the kingdom of God is on offer, a relationship with God once you are saved and born again. Adam falls, loses both kingdoms, if you will. Christ is a second Adam, he comes to offer to reinstate both kingdoms. And Moses went up into the mount. Moses goes up into the mount. Elsewhere, God comes down to seek and to save that which is lost. And a cloud covered the mount. Transfiguration, like I say. The Olivet Discourse. Many mountains in scripture. But again, Adam had access to God in the Garden of Eden. Kingdom of Heaven, if you will. He had great authority. Type of Christ, obviously. Eve is called the mother of all living. A type of the church. The church gives life. The body of Christ, if you will, gives life. We can say this to people. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you receive him, you have life. We can say that to people. We have the authority to do that. No one else can do that. That Muslim who spent three hours on his feet debating that American Christian didn't have peace, didn't have authority, couldn't offer everlasting life, was a very brash sort of a guy, a lot of bravado coming out of his mouth, playing to the audience, as it were. But he didn't have the kingdom of heaven to offer anyone, nor the kingdom of God. Look at verse 16. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Keep your hand there and go to Job. I was reading this this morning, and it's always amazing what comes to you, even after you spend days, sometimes weeks, uh, preparing uh, for a message like this. This study, incidentally, is now 19 months old, and... I would guess and say we probably accumulated around just over 90 hours of material. But I read this this morning and I thought there was an interesting cross-reference. Job chapter 2, Job chapter 2, look at verse 13. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him. And they saw that his grief was very great. Job was a literal man, a Gentile, just for the record. But he's a picture, he's a type of the Jew in the tribulation. The tribulation runs seven years. And here his friends have come to see him, to console him over the loss of his children and his livestock. One more time, verse 13. And they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights. It's always worth to do a study when it comes to numbers. Not necessarily a word study, like I say, because every verse has a different meaning. Or words in the verses where they are found have different meanings. Going back to Genesis 6, repented, repenteth, and Acts chapter 20 and also elsewhere. But here they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights. Now I say this. I say this is literal. I don't think this is figurative. How they could sit down for seven days and seven nights, I don't know. You might say well, they got up, had a break here or there. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It says they sat down for seven days and seven nights. Is it possible? Yes. Is it Practical, not particularly. Would it be comfortable? Not at all. It's, uh, it's possible. It's plausible. So they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights. The Jew will be comforted during the tribulation. That's what Matthew 25 is all about. You visited me, you clothed me, you came unto me. And the Lord rewards those that were good and kind to the Jews. Anyone who attacks the Jews, or Israel specifically, but the Jews more particularly and more historically, is in trouble. I found a video last night of a 
British woman, a former police officer, depressed, distressed with the state of Britain, who can blame her, trying to work out why a particular person has gone back to prison, whom I shan't name, and she's blaming the Jews, basically. Mm. She's blaming the Jews, she's blaming Saudi Arabia, she's blaming this person, that person. How about blaming yourself? What do they say? You get the governments that you deserve? When you stop walking with the Lord, he stops walking with you. When you start voting in godless politicians, you get the governments that you deserve. I'll bless those that bless you. I'll curse those that curse you. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. That's why it's imperative, people, once you get saved, to stick up for the Jew, pray for the Jew. Yes, they'll get the comeuppance. Don't worry. Don't worry. I know Karl Marx was a Jew. I know Karl Marx wrote Das Kapital. I know Karl Marx's book ruined Russia, France, and China. I know Das Kapital destroyed, what, 300 million people? I know what happened with Das Kapital. I know who Karl Marx was. His father was a rabbi. I know all that. Karl Marx was a secular Jew. I know all that. His book destroyed millions of people. I saw another debate this week between uh, Peter and Christopher Hitchens, two British academics in America, again, the land of the free and the great. They always go to America for these debates. You couldn't do them here, of course. And that's one great thing about America. She's still a beacon, a bastion to the lost world. And I watched this debate from 2008. Christopher, this very arrogant, pompous, conceited atheist, using foul language in a church building of all places. And his brother Peter, an Anglican, I thought put up a very weak defence of the, of the gospel or Christianity in general. And I watched that two-hour debate, these two going back and forth. And uh, Hitchens, Christopher that is, obviously is left-wing, pro-Russia in a, in a historical sense, and China in an historical sense and elsewhere. He lied through his teeth. He was able to focus on the Nazis being Catholic, and they were. Franco and Mussolini being Catholic, and they were. And other people, the uh, priest uh, in uh, Yugoslavia, whose name escapes Croatia. me. Croatia, excuse me. Uh, who is now a saint, I think, in the Catholic Church. And he was quite right to highlight those Catholic monsters, fascists, killing millions. But I tell you what, if you add up the communists and how many they killed and add up the fascists, the Catholics, in the 20th century, mind you, the communists outkilled them three to one, easily. That's atheism, of course. But of course, Hitchens, Christopher, that is, is anti the Jew, basically. And it was also uh, depressing, in a sense, to watch Peter call Genesis, the uh, literal accounts of creation, uh, incorrect. In fact, he used the word bonehead to denote the literal creation, which I took offence to. I'm not saying Peter is unsaved. We met Peter a couple of years ago. Patrick met him in Oxford, spoke to him, says he's a Christian. I'm not saying he's unsaved. I don't know if he's saved or not. But when he makes a statement that Genesis is isn't to be taken literally and those that do are boneheads i take offense to that if you throw out genesis chapter 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 11 when do you start taking the bible literally you start attacking the jew which these people are doing you will pay your own peril your own price one more time and we'll go back to the book of exodus uh, so they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights picture of the tribulation of course and none spake a word unto him absolute silence also a picture of the great white throne judgment. Every mouth will be stopped. That debate between the two Hitchens went for two hours. Christopher spoke for around 70% of that debate. Nothing edifying came out of his mouth. Smug, arrogant, like I say, pompous, conceited. I mean, every 
word comes to my mind when I look at Christopher Hitchens, an embarrassment, basically, a wonderful so-called British export to America, is people like him that have destroyed this country. Don't you blame the Jews. You start with your own people. It's academics like Christopher Hitchens that have destroyed this country with their evolution, their worship of science, the so-called science religion. And he goes over to America, and ironically, he died in Texas, Bible Belt. And yet these two going back and forth. No real clear plan of salvation from the mouth of Peter. But, of course, one more time, you get the governments that you deserve, and you get the academics that you deserve. One quick footnote, I will say, concerning Christopher or Peter Hitchens. Two brilliant brains, incidentally. Let's not uh, take away. They are very intellectual men. One is dead, of course. The other is still alive. Christopher died of cancer, an awful death, a very slow and prolonged death. But it was interesting to note, because there's always an agenda, you see. There's always an agenda when it comes to why people are anti-God. One of the reasons why uh, Charles Darwin was anti-God was because he lost some of his children. They were young. He was angry with God, very angry with God for the loss of his children. Karl Marx also lost some of his children, and he too was angry with God. Sigmund Freud, also Jewish, with, I think his father was religious from memory, turned against God, became agnostic, became indifferent. But one of the reasons I think why Christopher Hitchens, specifically, who has been able to uh, promote uh, people like Richard Dawkins and uh, Stephen Fry and uh, the late Hawkins, who died in Cambridge a couple of years ago, whose first name escapes me. Uh, one of the reasons why Christopher was so angry was because his mother killed herself, a double suicide, and not only did she kill herself, she killed herself with her defrocked lover, clergyman. An old Christopher, this is back in 1972, I would suggest he was probably around 30 or early 20s, saw that and probably said to himself, well, that's religion, you can keep it. But his brother didn't say that, did he? His brother is a Christian, and to this day, in a weak sort of a way, go back to the book of Exodus, stands up for the Lord. 16 again, uh, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, modern day Egypt, and the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So Moses has been waiting for six days, if you will, the earth is 6,000 years old, and the Jew is waiting for the Messiah to come back. Every eye shall see him. They will mourn and weep for him. Revelation chapter 1. Without holiness, Hebrews chapter 11, no man shall see the Lord. And Moses has gone up to the mount. He's waited and waited six days. And on the seventh day, at the end of time, if you will, he calls unto Moses, I call my sheep, and my sheep hear my voice. Out of the midst of the cloud, back to a cloud again. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. It's fire, it's light. Going back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, Christ dwells in the light which no man can see, which no man can approach unto. God Almighty, like the Father, is a light. The Holy Ghost is a light. One of the reasons why you're not told what the Father looks like or the Spirit is because if you were told what he looks like the, the, the Father or the Spirit, you would probably get a pen out and start trying to draw him. That's what all artists do sooner or later. They start to draw, paint. God Almighty, and he doesn't want to be painted. God Almighty is invisible to the human eye. God Almighty, one more time, is immaterial. God is a spirit. Going back to how they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So God is not material. God is not material. Please get that clear. The Father is not material. The Holy Ghost is not material. God is a non-physical being. But 
But, but, the Father and the Spirit decided to send the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God is the Son of God. The Son of God is the Godhead bodily in Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus Christ represents the Father and the Spirit. To go beyond that becomes uh, unnecessary, really. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. One day God's going to burn up this world, literally. The first time he would use water to flood the world. Second time he would use fire to burn up the world in a physical sense. A picture of those that go to hell forever. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and gat him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. Keep your hand there and go to... Luke chapter 9, Elijah would spend 40 days with the Lord. Jesus Christ would spend 40 days uh, being tempted. Uh, Luke chapter 9, God was able to sustain Elijah for 40 days. No food, no water, and so too, with Mo uh, so too would he concerning Moses. The children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. No problem, no problem for the Lord whatsoever. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, look at verse 27. But I tell you of a truth, Jesus speaking, there be some standing here which are not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. So one more time, Adam, type of Christ, is created from the earth. Christ comes from the earth via Mary, of course. Adam has the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. He loses both due to the fall. Jesus Christ comes on the earth, second Adam. He's got both kingdoms, both kingdoms. 28, and it came to pass about an eight days after these sayings, did you see that? About an eight days after these sayings, going back to seven days, seven nights concerning Job, a physical Gentile, pre the law, picturing a Jew in the tribulation. Seven years waiting for the Messiah to return. Not all Jews will take the mark of the beast. Not all Gentiles will take the mark of the beast. Came to pass about an eight days after these sayings. Elsewhere it says seven days. There's our number again, seven. He took... Peter and John and James, I went up into a mountain to pray. Moses, Aaron, Nahab, Abihu, on top of that 70, picturing the greater community. But when Christ goes up, he only takes three people with him. The others stay back. And elsewhere it says, when they came back down from the mount, there was an argument, which then would be the, would, uh, would be the greatest. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. Moses comes back down from the mount, his face has changed, he puts a veil on, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Over time, the veil and the radiance, or the radiance specifically, starts to deteriorate, the veil is no longer needed. Basically, when you met God back in the Old Testament, you were standing in the presence of something like radiation, something that you can't really understand. When the Americans dropped nuclear bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima, it destroyed untold numbers of people. The fallout spread for miles all over Japan when uh, the Russian uh, incident took place, uh, Chernobyl, back in the late 1980s. Thousands upon thousands died due to that nuclear fallout. And therefore, if you were to see God in the Old, Te in the Old Testament, a Christophany, uh, you saw God obviously face to face, not the Father. But had you seen the Father? I think you would have died. That's why it says how no man can approach unto the light, so on and so forth. Raiment, white and glistening, and behold, there taught with him two men, here we go, which were Moses and Elias, Moses and Elijah. 
So Moses gets to see the promised land, who appeared in glory, resurrected, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem, dying on the cross, obviously. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep. They're worn down, stressed, as Moses was back in the Old Testament. The pain and grief of staying awake all night with the Lord was getting too much, taking its toll on them. And when they were awake, they saw his glory. They saw his glory. Going back to what Moses saw. And the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Bit of an understatement. And let us make three tabernacles. Going back to what we looked at last week. Tabernacle under the hill. Before the temple goes up, obviously. One for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias, Elijah. Not knowing what he said, his tongue got the better of him. James speaks about our tongues. One minute we are praising the Lord, the next minute we are cussing, cursing, blaspheming. He says that's not from heaven, it's from the devil. It's devilish. And this is obviously Peter's old nature. But three tabernacles could be uh, evidence on the new earth for the saved Jew. Was a church... Get the keys to New Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven and hovers over the earth. Get that distinction clear if you can, please. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. They go into the cloud. One more time. While he thus spake, there came a cloud, Exodus chapter 24, and overshadowed them. The Holy Ghost will come upon Mary. She will conceive. That thing will be called the Son of God. Jesus Christ was referred to in the Neuter. That thing, that holy thing, Roman speaks about the Holy Ghost in the Neuter. It shall convince you. It will lead you into all areas of righteousness. And here, while he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them. And they feared as they entered into the cloud. Go back to the book of Exodus. One more time. Look at verse 16. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. It's almost the same thing. Moses goes up, sees the Lord. Jesus goes up, gets a glimpse of his return, second advent. He takes a group of men with him. Moses takes a group of men with him. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. They stood afar off. They saw this fire, this light. Going back to, again, 1 Timothy chapter 6, the light which no man can approach unto. Christ Jesus has the keys to everlasting life, the keys to hell, the keys for, the, for both kingdoms. And they, say, they see this physical fire, this physical light. Picture in the second advent. It says over in the Gospels, when he comes back, everyone will see him at the same time. It's a simultaneous return, second advent, not the rapture. The rapture is a secret gathering. For the church, whereas the second advent is worldwide, specifically for the Jews, those that go through the tribulation and get saved, of course. And Moses went into the mount of the cloud, verse 18, and got him up into the mount, got him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. He's going to get the law. He's going to get future and further revelations. What he sees, he will later write down. And that's the first five books of the Bible, basically the Torah. But it's interesting when you think of this light, this fire, picturing not only one's baptism in a spiritual sense, but also picturing one's baptism into everlasting damnation. Matthew 25. Now you wouldn't get that doing a word study. You've got to read the verses in the correct context. And you've got to cross-reference them, go back and forth to really understand what is going on. 
So we will close it there. Uh, this has been a three-week study looking at only 18 verses. It's also interesting when you think about it being Jesus Christ referred to in the Neuter and the Holy Ghost referred to in the Neuter. It does cause problems for some people. Uh, but of course, when you understand that God speaks to different people in different ways, and if you take the entire picture, if you appraise the entire scripture, it all makes a perfect sense to you. But here's another thought for you, and I'll close with this thought. Genesis chapter 3 speaks about the seed of the serpents and the seed of Eve. And of course we read that and we see that the seed uh, from Eve is going to produce the Messiah. Whereas a seed of the serpent is going to produce the Antichrist. But if you read Jewish literature like the Talmud, they say this, that the seed of the serpent is the Gentile. And that's interesting, isn't it? It's because they say that the seed of the serpent is the Gentile. And yet Jesus Christ, very God and very man, from John chapter 8, would say to the Jews, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, abode not in the truth, so on and so forth. So Jesus Christ, being God and man, knew that one day the Talmud would be written, and don't get the Talmud confused with the Tanakh, and the Talmud would say that, and this is unofficial Jewish teachings, that the seed of the serpent was in reference to the Gentiles. And that's one of the reasons why I think Jonah was so angry with the Ninevites. Refused to go to them, being Gentile, refused to preach to them. And God had to almost kill Jonah, a Jew, to go down and preach to the Ninevites, Gentiles. So Jesus Christ, knowing all things, unlike Muhammad and other so-called religious people, said to the Jews, John chapter 8, how they were of their father the devil, not the Gentiles. They were of their father the devil, and the lusts of their father they will do. And that goes one more time back to Jesus Christ being very God and very man, knowing the beginning from the end. And we'll close it there. Amen.